If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Like all of our sermons in Romans, the title emphasizes a key theological word that is emphasized in the chapter that we're looking at. Today is no different. The title is this idea that we're looking at called sanctification. What is that? What what does that mean? Why is it important? Simply put, sanctification involves the idea of holiness. It has as its root this, this idea of being set apart. And so for the Christian, for God's people, it can mean one of two ways of being setting apart. First of all, it can mean the setting apart that God does in our lives when we first become Christians. Uh, Paul writes to the, the Corinthians in his first letter, addressing the church as those that have been sanctified in Christ. It's already done. They have put their faith in Him, and God has separated them out. He has pulled them out. He has made them holy and unique from the rest of the world. That's one kind of sanctification, a one-time event that that comes as the result of our salvation in Christ, putting our faith in Him. But we also see in the Bible that sanctification is more than that. It is also a word that is used to describe a process, a process over the course of our entire life of faith whereby God not simply sets us apart from the world declaring us to be special and holy for Him, but whereby He actually makes us holy. So though He has declared us righteous in Christ, God also works a righteousness of our own within us as the fruit of that declaration of righteousness in Christ. He is cultivating within us a spirit that actually resembles the glory of His Son in all of His holy splendor. And both of these ideas being set apart in Christ and being continually molded into the image of the righteous Christ is found in this chapter this morning. And I have to say, this week as I was preparing to preach, I felt the weight of what Paul says in this chapter. It's amazing that when you're preparing to preach on holiness, how much sin and temptation suddenly becomes evident in your life. And what I want us to understand, just as I would any time, but especially as we're working our way through Romans, which often is thought of as this really thick, heavy theological book, And that is what we're hearing in these chapters, what we're going to see in Romans chapter 6 is not something just left to books being written. It's not something just left to scholars giving papers and discussions. This is about life. This is about how we get up in the morning and how we put our heads on the pillow at night. Paul has just said we are saved by grace. We do nothing to earn our salvation. Okay, but now how do I live with sin in my life? What do I do with it? If grace conquers all sin, why bother with holiness? How do I fight against sin for holiness if that's what I think I should do? These are the kinds of questions that Paul addresses in Romans chapter 6. And if you are indeed a real believer in Christ, these are questions, these are thoughts that at some point you will have thought about and will probably continue to be thinking about for as long as God allows you to live in this world. So what does Paul say? What kind of help does he provide for us? Follow along or listen as I read Romans chapter 6 this morning. Paul has ended chapter 5 by saying that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And now in chapter 6, he says, what shall we save in? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can he who died to sin still live in it? 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. That The life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace." What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness." I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. May God bless the reading of His Word. To summarize the sermon in one sentence, we could say this, because you are freed from sin, fight for righteousness. Because you have been freed from sin, fight for righteousness. That is the message that Paul has for God's people in this passage. Nevertheless, you may be here and, and think, well, I, I'm not a Christian. I'm not confident I'm one of God's people. What, what do I do? What I want you to do this morning is listen to the alternatives. Listen to the two paths that Paul describes and decide which sounds better. Death because of sin or righteousness because of obedience by faith in Christ. And this morning, I hope you will look to Christ as a result. Trust in Him so that you by faith will also be able to fight for righteousness having been freed from sin. Well, it begins in the first 14 verses, the first half of the chapter, as Paul describes our freedom from sin's reign. Our freedom from sin's reign. Usually when we talk about the Bible's teaching about sin, there are three aspects of sin that the Bible uh, describes, or at least we usually talk in three aspects of sin that the Bible describes in relationship to humanity. First, there is the penalty of sin. 
This is the just condemnation we deserve for our sinfulness. We sin. There is a penalty. It's called death and hell. Second, the Bible talks about the power of sin. It's domineering, enslaving force that it wields over our lives, causing us to conform to it. Such is the life of those apart from Christ. Finally, there is the presence of sin. It's very existence in our lives, in our hearts, because we are born sinful. Even in God's people, though we have been freed from the penalty and power of sin, we must contend with sin's ongoing presence. We have to fight by the Spirit of God against our old nature. And in the opening chapters of Romans, chapters 1 through 5, Paul has explained how the penalty of sin has been dealt with in the cross. If we look to Christ in faith, there is no longer a penalty for our sins. It has been forgiven. Now, in the next few chapters, he's going to explain how in Christ, the power of sin has been neutralized and we must fight against its presence. And all this is seen because of the fact that in Christ now, we have a new direction for our lives. We have a new direction for our lives. Notice the question Paul begins with. He says in verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, Paul just spent three chapters showing that God doesn't save because of what we do. And then he's argued hard that the righteousness of God's saving work has come to us through Christ by faith alone. He's hammered again and again to his readers that the law does not produce anything but an awareness of sin. It is grace alone, through Christ alone, his own righteousness imputed to us by which sinners come to God. But the twistic logic of the sinful heart might say something like this in response to that. Okay, so where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. It superabounds. Therefore, if I want God's grace in my life to be abundant and overflowing, I should continue in sin. Because wherever there's sin exists, grace exists all the more. Now, for some of you, that may just seem bonkers, but there's actually been people throughout the history of the world that have actually believed and taught that very thing, thinking themselves to be Christians. Perhaps one of the most famous examples has been the, the Russian monk Rasputin. If you know anything about Russian history, he had a, an amazing influence in the Romanov family in their final years. Kent Hughes explains that Rasputin taught that salvation came through repeated experiences of sin and repentance. He argued that because those who sin require more forgiveness, those who sin will abandon with, excuse me, those who sin with abandon will, as they repent, experience greater joy. Therefore, it is the believer's duty to sin. What an amazing display of illogical logic. So what about it, Paul? Is he right? Because see, here's the thing. If you are truly a gospel preacher, this question will come up. Because if you truly preach the gospel, if you believe the gospel the way that you should, the natural conclusion, the natural response is, okay, so wait a minute. How do I live my life? If it's just all of God's grace, then does that mean I don't have to bother with sin anymore? Just don't worry about it? What does Paul say? In the strongest terms possible in verse 2, he says, By no means. Now, depending on your translation, you're going to have all kinds of things there. It might say, God forbid. It might say, no, no. My favorite is the cotton patch version because it's so out there, but I can't say it in the pulpit. You have to go look it up for yourself. The point is, no way. Paul says it is not the inference that you should make from the teaching of the gospel of grace. Instead, he says this statement, how can we who died to sin still live in it? 
The, the gospel does not lead to a life of sin because those who believe in the gospel have died to sin. And so the reality is that most Christians at some point in their life, they reach out to a pastor, they reach out to another Christian, and, and, they, and they're just sorrowful over their sin. They say, I don't think I'm saved. Why don't you think you're saved? Because I sin so much, it drives me bananas. I don't understand. I don't understand how, how, how me, a, a person who's put their faith in Christ, can have so much sin in their life. I just, I can't stand it. And, and the mature person will say, well, let me ask you this. Before you became a Christian, what, what did you think about your sin? The person will usually say, I didn't think anything about it at all. I just did it. Well, good news. All of this awareness of sin probably means you really are a Christian. The, the reality is, when we were living for sin, we didn't give it a second thought. It's just how we lived. It's how we lived our life. But now that you have died to sin, there is a fundamental new direction for your life. That means a fundamentally new way of thinking. And suddenly, you're aware of all this sin. You're thinking, oh my goodness, I'm the worst Christian ever. No, what it means is you're in the fight. You actually have spiritual life. You have an awareness. You have clear vision out of sea. This is what Christ died for. And this is what His grace continually expunges from my life as I live by faith in Him. It's my belief that if that's never been your experience as a believer, if you never worry about sin, if there are never times when perhaps you even weep over your sin, then you might not be a believer. You might need to rethink your understanding of the gospel and its effects in your life. Because Paul says, as believers, we have a new direction to our life. We have died from sin. How did this happen? It came because sin's dominion was broken. There is now a broken dominion over our lives, a broken dominion. We see this in verses 3 through 10. Paul goes on and says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into His death. The believer's baptism points to their salvation. And Paul never has in mind a Christian who hasn't experienced baptism. Not because baptism saves, but because baptism is an obedient act to Christ to command that we be baptized. It brings us into the fellowship of God's people. And he says those that have been baptized in water are those who have put their faith in Christ. We don't just baptize anybody. That's what he's saying. Those who are saved, those who trust in Christ are baptized. Therefore, anyone who's baptized has put their faith in Christ. What does that mean? It means they have experienced a spiritual baptism in Him if they've truly put their confidence and their faith and their hope in Him. If they are saved, their life has been united to His. And what does He say? First and foremost, that was a baptism, that was a union into His death. Verse 4, he says, we were baptized into his death. We were buried with him by baptism into death. In verse 6, he says, this is what caused our being crucified with him. Crucified, dead, buried. That is how Paul describes our union with Christ. He is using the most severe language possible to describe the decisive break that has happened between our new life in Christ and our old lives in sin. And his point is to emphasize sin no longer is king over our life. We have died to that relationship. It doesn't exist anymore. It is no longer our master. It has no authority, no dominion over us any longer. And don't just blow past that too quickly. Think about what that means. Think about how amazing it is for that to be true. Perhaps turn your imagination toward the dark days of slavery in this country and try and put yourself in the frame of mind of someone who was uh, 
who was born into slavery. Their parents or their grandparents were, 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 were kidnapped and brought over here, and they themselves were, 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 were born into slavery. They've known no other kind of life. All of, your, all of your actions, all of your daily occupations, everything about who you were was directed by the master of the house. Though not a tyrant necessarily, there was no real freedom for your life. You couldn't just go and do whatever you wanted. He directed your movements throughout the day and the course of your life. And that's all you knew. Until a man named President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. After two more years of fighting a civil war, your freedom became reality. Now suddenly you find yourself sitting with your own parents, learning to read and write in a classroom. You're able to go north and to get a job, any job you want, to, to start a family and live however you want. The old dominion is gone. So that even if your old slave master shows up again and starts barking orders, you just say, what are you talking about? You're dead to me. It's over. It's gone. You have no authority in my life. These chains have been released and I am free. Paul made clear in chapter 5 that all of us are born under the reign of sin because we are born as descendants of Adam. But now, in verse 6, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has, been die for one who has died has been set free. So Christ died in our place. By faith, our lives united with Him. That means His death is our death. And what was that death to? Sin. It's no longer the reigning force in our life. We have been liberated, and now holiness is possible. Paul uses the imagery of death and also of life because that was Christ's experience. So it's not just we've, we're dead in Christ, we're also alive in Him. Look at verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism to death in order that... Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Spiritual life means a new way of living. Verse 80 says, we have, If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead is never going to die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. For the Christian... Life in Christ is resurrection life. We're still in this world, but spiritually, we have been united to Him, and He is in heaven with the Father. So, what does that mean for our daily lives? It means now that we live with a certain kind of gospel determination. A gospel determination. We see that in verses 11 through 14. Paul here moves from facts to life. He moves from doctrine to duty. What do we know that has happened? What do we believe has taken place in Christ? What, should, what effect should that have on how we live? And what he says is, in light of our freedom from sin, we must now live apart from sin. We live with a new determination to be God's people because the gospel has brought freedom to our lives. How do we, though, live with determination by the gospel? How do we fight against sin? How do we live out of the freedom that we have? Lives of holiness before God. Paul gives three practical suggestions in these verses. First, he says that we ought to consider our salvation. We ought to consider our salvation. In verse 11, he says, In light of what God has done for you, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Notice that word consider. It's important. It speaks to the mind. You are thinking about what God has done. 
Why is that important? It's important because the Bible is clear. That's where temptation starts in your mind. Sin makes itself known to us and begins to promise us joy and satisfaction and ease of pain and suffering in some way. And we have a decision that needs to be made. We can either trust in the promise of sin or we can remember, we can consider, we can, we can think through the promises of the gospel that this is going to lead to death, but obedience to God is going to lead to life and therefore choose not to follow after sin, not to live as if we're still under its dominion, but to say no and pursue holiness in Christ. This is why the life of the believer starts with considering who we are in Christ, considering the gospel truths of the damnation that comes from sin, but the justification that comes in Christ. The battle against sin and temptation always begins with faith, looking outside ourselves to remember, to consider, to believe the promises of the gospel. But second, it doesn't just start, it doesn't just end there. Notice what Paul says. We don't just consider our salvation. We also must be determined to cut off sin, to cut off sin. He says, having considered who we are in Christ, verse 12 let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Now, the word instruments there occurs a handful of times in the New Testament. And it's interesting that in almost every instance, it's translated as weapons. It's translated as weapons. So think about the imagery that Paul is saying there. He says, your body, its members, your fingers, your, your ears, your eyes. The members of your body are weapons in a war for holiness. Every part of your body can either be used to glorify God or to satisfy your sinful desires. What you look at with your eye, what you say with your mouth, how you use the parts of the body that we cover in modesty, all of them, all of them are to be used as weapons in the fight for holiness. Paul says, by faith in Christ, do not let sin take control of yourself. Do not let sin take control of you. Uh, even in, in the, the very physical form in which you live, your body doing acts of unrighteousness in sin, instead, instead, put sin to death and live with your body to acts of righteousness. That's the third thing he says. We consider our salvation, we cut off sin, and then we commit to service. We commit to service. What kind of service? Service to God and to see in righteousness. Verses 13 to 14. Rather than using your body as an instrument for unrighteousness, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God, your, 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 your body parts as instruments, as weapons for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Instead of using your body for sin, Paul says, use it for righteousness. That is, use your body in ways that serve God and His purposes in this world. You see, the process of sanctification is more than just a holiness of the heart. It's more than just saying, well, I'm not going to do that, and I'm not going to do that, and I'm not going to do that, I'm going to be really pious, I'm going to pray a lot, I'm going to read my Bible a lot, and I'm going to have inner peace. And I'm, 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 no, 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 no. That's part of it. 
But then there's this proactive part. It's not just saying, i got to keep away from sin. It is invading the territory of sin that the enemy has with acts of righteousness for the glory of God. So you say, well, how, how do I do that? What are you talking about? Just think about the, the kind of natural web of relationships you have in your life right now. Family, neighbors, church members. And you ask, how can I serve the purposes of God in their life? This is not like, you know, I got to go off and do this, that, or the other. I got to, you know, sell my possessions. And other people. No, no, no. Just, just think about the simple commands, very, very simple commands that Christ gives to his people in the Gospels that the apostles expand on in their letters. Things like be generous with your time and your treasure, be hospitable to those in need, pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ, pray with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Just, just by way of a- application here, in case it's not been clear at some point, we're commanded to gather together to pray. And frankly, we have a pretty low bar at this church set for that. One hour, once a month. And, and, and we do a pretty poor job of fulfilling that command. Now, I know there's family obligations and there's this, that, and the other. There, there's work. But on the, on the whole, from, from, from what, from just from seeing Facebook and other things, we do not use that as an opportunity to serve one another, to serve the righteous purposes of God, to help one another fight the fight of faith when it comes to praying for one another. This church excels in so many other ways, but it's a gaping hole in our life together. Okay, just consider that the next first Saturday. When rather than taking it easy from the weak, we decide to fight the fight of faith together, to serve one another in righteousness by gathering in prayer. And of course, cannot forget Christ's command to preach the gospel and make disciples. All of these are just simple, simple ways that we stop using our bodies as instruments for unrighteousness, giving in to sin as if it is still the dominating force in our life, and instead we serve God in His purposes in righteousness. All of that brings really us to the second half of the chapter. In Christ, He has emphasized freedom from sin's reign, but now, now, in the second half, He says, look, we are also now have freedom to serve righteousness. Freedom to serve righteousness. That's the whole point of verses 15 through 23. Freedom from slavery in order that we might have freedom to serve. And so he starts by asking another question similar to verse 1. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Paul, you said the law means nothing now. All those commands, we don't do anything. So we just don't, we don't obey anything. We don't do any commands. We don't listen to God. We just let grace flourish. And Paul says the same thing. By no means. Of course not. Heaven forbid. You, that's what you walk away thinking I'm saying. It's a similar question and with a similar end, but it's got slightly different emphasis. Should we, in, the, in, in verse 1, shouldn't we sin so that more grace comes into our life? No. In verse 15, he says, uh, do, we, do we sin now just because grace has already come into our life? Do we just become sloppy in our life? And the same end is, no, the free grace of God does not encourage sin. That's what Paul's response is. And specifically now, what he wants us to see It's not just the breaking of sin's mastery, the embracing of sin, but now a new experience of our life whereby we devote ourselves 
to service to God under a new master. And it starts with an attitude of thankful obedience. Thankful obedience. You know, in this culture, we live and breathe freedom. Uh, we, we, just, we absolutely love it. It's in our blood. It's who we are as a culture. Um, you know, you can try and deny it, but the reality is as soon as you go to another culture, you get airdropped into another country somewhere, and, and, and you're like, oh, there's restrictions here, there's restrictions here, there's restrictions here. You realize we are a free people. And when you begin to impinge on that freedom, we, we do not like it. I mean, that's just who we are as Americans. But you've got to also understand we're not just Americans, we're Christians. In fact, Christian is the primary identifier, at least it should be for our lives. And so when we get smacked between the eyes in these verses with what Paul says, which seems very anti-freedom, we should not rebel, we should not resist, we should say, what, Paul, what are you talking about? Understanding that this is going to be good for us. Listen to what he says. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now here, Paul has in mind not American culture, but Roman culture, where if I am really destitute, I mean, I, I, I have nothing, I have zero in this world. I can go and offer myself, present myself to someone to be their slave. What does that mean for me? That means a meager paycheck, free food, and free housing. Not that bad of a deal if, I'm, if I've got nothing. Okay? There wasn't you know, social programs in the first century Roman world. They don't care if you die of starvation. The government had zero concern for your well-being. But notice what he says. He says, listen, if you offer yourself as a slave to any person, you're obedient to that person now. That's your whole job. It's a reason why you do this. That's the trade-off here. He says, if you're a slave to sin, now you're obeying sin. You're doing whatever sin tells you to do. And what is that going to lead? Death. But now, now that you have faith in Christ, you're no longer a slave to sin. But that doesn't mean you're not a slave. He says, you have a new master. We become slaves to obedience. And rather than death, that leads to righteousness. Now, for some of us, that, that, that kind of grates because we don't want to think of ourselves as being slaves. We want to think of ourselves as being free. But a surprisingly accurate summary of what Paul is saying here is found in Bob Dylan's song, Gotta Serve Somebody. Comparing and contrasting people from all different kinds of social situations in the verses, he sings over and over again in the chorus, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. That's pretty much Paul's point here. There's no middle ground. There's no fence writing. There's no kind of, uh, you know, I'm half in, I'm half out. Paul is echoing Jesus who said, you can't serve two masters. You're either serving sin or you're serving God. The natural man serves sin, but thanks be to God, Paul says, believers are no longer slaves of sin. Instead, they have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. In other words, this is no mere outward, outward obedience. This is not just putting on a show. You think back to the, to, to the imagery of slavery. Your, your master tells you, go and do this. Maybe you don't want to do that. Maybe you despise that task. I, you know, I've never been enslaved per se, but having worked many jobs, I think the worst thing that I ever had to do 
uh, which means I've had a pretty easy life, quite frankly, when it comes to this regard. Oh, I worked at a factory that made condiments, ketchups, uh, ketchups, jellies, jams, mustard, the whole thing. Worked there with my parents one summer in, in college, and they had this massive silo inside the building that held corn syrup, which was like the major ingredient for most of their products. The problem was no joker had ever climbed up there and cleaned up at the top of this thing. So as it filled by this massive truck that would come in and just pump all this corn syrup in, there was this huge floating thing in there. And as this bobber went up, it was supposed to rest on the top. This thing would go up, ding, and it would immediately cut off the suction of the corn syrup. We're full. Well, nobody cleans that thing up. So what's going to happen with corn syrup all up in there? Sticky, right? And so the corn syrup keeps flowing. So it overflows. It goes all down the side of this thing, all over the floor. At some point, I think this has happened before, because there was a one-inch high uh, kind of cinder block area surrounding this thing. But guess what? Nobody was paying attention. So this thing fills up about three or four inches of corn syrup all in this pit. And being the temporary worker, John, you and Trody clean that thing up. Seriously? Uh oh, how, what am I going to use that with this thing? Here's a squeegee. Figure it out. So for a week, for a week, it takes a week, we are scrubbing and squeegeeing and we just come and we're just like on break. We're all sticky. We're just covered in corn syrup. And let me tell you, every, by, by like the Wednesday, the Thursday, the Friday that week, I would come in, nobody on that night shift ever cleaned this thing. That was just my job. And you know what? I did it because I was getting paid for it, but I hated every second of it. I wasn't with her with a smile, <laughs> cleaning the corn syrup. That wasn't me. I was like, I hate this thing. This is so gross and disgusting. What in the world? What kind of idiot moron didn't check that? I mean, I was just mad. That's one way of serving, isn't it? Some of you maybe in your job feel like that. I hate this job. They're my boss. They give me a paycheck. I got to show up and do it. And Paul says, that's not the Christian life. That's not the Christian life. It is obedience from the heart, which means we delight. We take joy. We want to obey our new master. Not because we're forced to, because we want to. Obedience flows from the heart. We want to serve God. Why? Because we know it leads to righteousness. In fact, in verse 17, he says, we have become slaves of righteousness. Isn't it interesting how Paul flips the emphasis from the first part to the second part? In the first part of the chapter was we have freedom from sin. But now in the second part, it's not just freedom to do whatever we want to do. We're slaves to righteousness. The gospel does not lead to a masterless life. We are slaves, but now we serve righteousness. You say, doesn't that negate our freedom? No, not at all. See, people think freedom is doing whatever you want to do. That's not freedom. That's not freedom. Because the reality is, left to ourselves, no direction, no law, guess what we're going to do in our freedom? We're going to live out our sinful desires. We're going to do whatever we want to do, and what we want to do is sinful, which means we're going to be slay enslaved once again to sin. We freely choose our sinful desires, and in obeying those, we become enslaved to them. Real freedom is found in serving God. Because with Him, we are free not to sin, but to serve in righteousness. And so Paul explains that being united in Christ, we now have a sanctifying obligation. We have a sanctifying obligation. It's not just a, a, a new reality. Now we actually have to live out this thing. He starts by doing what most good preachers at many times in sermons do, acknowledging that the analogies that he is using to convey spiritual truth in early terms is imperfect. It's okay for the basic idea, but if you start pushing on the details, it's going to fall apart. It's not, it's not going to have the exact correspondence that you want. Verse 19, he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness... 
So now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. So what is he saying? He says, look, I know this slavery imagery doesn't quite work, but I'm talking this way because we have frail, limited, finite minds. And we need help trying to understand the things of the eternal, all-glorious God. Why does the imagery not have an exact crossover? Because the imagery of slavery is only one emphasis, only one part of our new life with God in Christ. Paul wants to make clear that one part there here. He wants us to understand that freedom from sin means freedom to serve. Christians don't just sit back and indulge their old appetites of lust and greed and anger and selfishness and all the things that that Pastor Doug prayed about in this prayer of repentance earlier. No. He says we strive to put those things to death, remembering that Christ has saved us out of such things. As God's people, we have an obligation now to strive for holiness, to grow in our sanctification. But... He says the imagery of slavery, though important, is only one part of it. Can't capture all of our relationship with God because that's not all of it. We're not just slaves to God. That's not the totality of how we know Him. He is our Redeemer who has freed us from slavery to sin, but He's also our Father who has lovingly adopted us into His family. He is the shepherd who cares for and feeds and protects and leads us tenderly as His sheep into spiritual health. He is the fount of living water that gives us life. He is the keeper of our souls until the very last day when we stand before Him as the judge of all earth where He will declare us righteous in Christ. He is the ancient of days who rules in perfect wisdom and freely shares that with all His people who call out and ask for it. We we could literally spend all day walking through the Bible, seeing the fullness of the blessings of our relationship with God in Christ, and we have to come back tomorrow and keep going, which is not going to exhaust it. And so, so He says, look, I know this is not the fullness of who we are with, with, with God and Christ, but it's an important part that we need to get in our heads. Though we once gave ourselves over, even every part of our body over to sin because we were slaves to sin, we're not slaves to sin anymore. We're slaves to righteousness. So we have an obligation to give ourselves over to godly living, to enslave ourselves, as it were, to obedience. And part of the incentive is the reminder that in doing so, we will be sanctified. The fight against sin will result in a glorious change in us. And that's what we see in the final verses. We see the fruitful outcome of our sanctification. The fruitful outcome of our serving righteousness. Paul basically gives the reason for why he has said what he said in verse 19. Why should Christians now present their members, their parts of their body as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification? He says, for you were slaves of sin. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, righteousness, godliness, obedience to God, it had no power in your lives when you were not a Christian. You were ignorant of those things. You didn't even think about it. That may have pleased us at the time. He says this, sobering question, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? First of all, think about that. You should be ashamed of your previous life, meaning that if you indulged in sin then, and you're indulging in sin now, that does not compute, Will Robinson. That does not follow. We ought to be ashamed of our previous sinful life. But notice, what does he say? What was the fruit you were getting of your slavery to sin? He says, the end of those things is death. So imagine some poor soul who's been drinking all of his life, and he makes his way to the doctor, tells him, look, your liver is shot. Your health is wrecked. If you don't stop drinking right now, I don't know how much longer you're going to have to live. And he says, listen, doctor. I can do what I, whatever I want to do. It's a free country. If I want to drink, I'm going to drink. That's exactly what he does. And bottle after bottle of booze, he slowly 
destroys himself more and more so his failing health finally just gives way and he's gone. Falls down to death on his floor, bottle in hand. Yeah, he was free. But where did that freedom get him? Nowhere good. And such is the case with all sin. All sin leads to death. It consumes us. Maybe not physical death, but certainly spiritual death before God, leading to condemnation for our sinfulness in hell. Paul says, that's not who you are anymore in Christ. Instead, now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. That is the fruitful outcome of a life of obedience. Sanctification that ends with eternal life in God. Now make no mistake, don't just hit the eject button in the last five chapters. Oh, I get it now. We obey and the result is we get eternal life. Nope. That is not what Paul wants us to go away with. Okay? And if you don't get that, go read Romans 1 through 5 again. Okay? That is not what he is saying. In fact, he, he makes that really clear in verse 23 at the end. The free gift of grace in Christ should produce within us obedience to God. That obedience is part of our process of sanctification whereby we grow in holiness. And what is the final fruit, the final result of that process of sanctification? Eternal life with God on the last day. That's the fruit that we're looking for. But of course, it doesn't happen all at once, does it? It's a process. It's a daily process of repentance and faith. But how will it all end? Eternal life with God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of my favorite Bible commentators is a man named Matthew Henry. In 1714, at age 52, he lay on his deathbed. And he had not had an easy life. Not only was he dying at a young age, relatively young anyway, he would also had to suffer through the grief of losing a wife and three children. And yet as he lay dying, he turned to a friend and he said this, You've been used to take notice of the sayings of dying men. This is mine. That a life spent in service of God and communion with Him is the most comfortable and pleasant life that one can live in the present world. What do you want to say on your deathbed? These days, hooked up to monitors probably, maybe even something breathing for you, keeping you alive until the doctors say, there's, there's no point, let's just turn the machine off. What thoughts do you want in your head? If you have to write it out, or perhaps even if you could croak out the words, would you be able to say after a life of suffering and disappointment that serving God enjoying the righteousness that comes in Christ, not just imparted, but also worked out practically by faith. Now that has been the best life imaginable for me. Or, do you want to just go your own way? Live your own life, do whatever you want to do, and yet lay there on your bed fearful of what is to come in the final moments after your breath ends. In other words, do you want to die worrying about what's going to happen because of the life you've lived, or do you want to die with comfort and assurance, thankful and happy because your life was not wasted in sin, but it was lived in the fullness of obedience to God? Only a life lived by the gospel of Christ, both for salvation and for sanctification, can end with that kind of hope and peace. 
Father, it's my prayer that all of us in this room would be able to have that kind of death comforted with a life that we have lived because of the grace of Christ overflowing in us. God, out of the fruit of the life that you have given us in him, God, out of the the overflow of the grace we have received in salvation, not because of anything we have done, but because of everything that he has done, may we see now the joyful obligation that we have, not simply to live however we want, not simply to blow off sin as if it's not important, but Father, to pursue sanctification by faith in Christ. God, may this message, even in this Christmas season, God, be an encouragement to us to know that, Father, the outcome of a life of righteousness is so much better than the outcome of a life of sin. One has full, eternal, lasting joy through life with you, and the other only ends in broken promises and disappointment and a life of torment apart from you. God, help us to look to Christ and believe this morning.